Thanks, Michael. Great to have that part of the Bible open, if you can, please. Uh, so that's Hebrews chapter 3. It'd be great to have it with, uh, with you. Um, oh, and I've just worked out that there is a bit of paper I need. Hmm. Michael, could you bring my bag from the back up? Otherwise, I'm going to have a, a wonderful moment in this, uh, in this service where I'm going to be short of one piece of information that I really need. Thanks, Michael. Isn't Michael good? He's very, very helpful. Michael, we thank you uh, for your assistance in a whole variety of different ways. Um, you're, you're a good, good man. Thanks, mate. I like my man bag very much. Purse. Uh, I think if someone says it's a purse, if you're a Jerry Seinfeld uh, watcher, then I would say it's European. No? There we go. Okay, very good. I'm the only one, clearly. Uh, this is fairly important. Uh, that's good. Da, da, da. Well, you know what? It'll be a little bit more clunky without it. That's okay. No, no, no. It's clearly nowhere. So that's good. Oh, well, I need prayer, so how about I pray? And uh, we'll start our, our time together. Heavenly Father, thanks, uh, thanks for this word that was read to us. I pray that you would help us tonight to be able to understand this word and that we might not harden our hearts when we hear it. Uh, be present here by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, uh, I don't have a piece of paper, that's fine. We won't miss it too much. But here's the thing. At the end of this sermon, we're going to have a Q&A. Um, I would love for you to ask your questions at the end of it. And the questions can be about anything that you would like. You can ask me one of the 20 questions I just asked Tricia, if you would like. But it would be helpful if you ask me questions around what we're looking at tonight. So if you have questions as they come through, you might want to jot them down on your Caring Connect card as we go. We said we're going to look at our faithful value tonight, and that's exactly what we are going to do. But we're going to do it by looking at uh, the, the letter to the Hebrews. I want to tell you about something about the letter to the Hebrews. It's a letter written to Christians with a Jewish background. So that's Hebraic, so they are the Hebrews. Okay, so that's, that's, that's where we get it from. So they're the Hebrews. Uh, we don't know who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. I have a sneaking suspicion. Okay, tell you afterwards. I think I have an idea of who wrote it, but it's not a lock-in, and nobody knows for sure. Okay, so we don't know who wrote it. We don't know when they wrote it. But the suspicion is they wrote it before 70 AD. And you go, how do we know that? Well, it's a letter written to Jewish Christians, and it's saying to them that Jesus is better than all the ceremonial things. Okay? He's better than the old sacrifices, better than the law. And if the Jewish temple no longer existed, then you might point that out in the letter that says how good Christianity is. In AD 70, the Romans went into Jerusalem, they were already there, but they decided that because the Jews were so unsettled that they would destroy the temple. So Herod had built a beautiful temple in the city and they destroyed it. They absolutely trashed it. Now, if you're writing a letter to Hebrew Christians and you're trying to say how much better Jesus is, it would be super helpful to go, ha, Jesus is better than sacrifices and you can't offer them anymore anyway. So we figure it was written before AD 70. Beyond that, we believe it was written to um, the church in Rome uh, the Hebrew Christians in Rome, and it was written in a time of persecution with growing threats. Now, why were there threats for the Christian church in Rome? Let me explain to you a little bit about the thought world if you're a, a Roman. So I've been reading a great book called, um, ah, Mental Blank. That is not the name of the book, by the way. Something about 
Basically, it's about the spiritual lives of the Roman Empire and how Christianity plugged into the thought world of the first century. It's a great book. I'll tell you afterwards at supper. You can ask me. But, um, but in this book, basically, what it says is the Romans were incredibly superstitious. They lived in a world that was saturated with gods, absolutely saturated with gods. They had the Roman gods. They adopted all of the Greek gods. And what that meant was there was a god for anything you were doing. There was a God for travel. There was a God for success in work. There was a God for love, a God for war. And the idea was whatever was happening in your life, you needed to offer sacrifice to that God so that you wouldn't get in trouble, so that bad things wouldn't happen to you. Highly superstitious world. There was only one group of people that weren't expected to make sacrifices to the Roman gods. Do you know who they were? Yes, Doug. The Jews. Thanks, Doug. You're exactly right. It was the Jews. And what happened was the Romans respected the fact that the Jewish religion was incredibly ancient. And they said, you're weird, but we're going to respect you and let you not do the sacrifices to the Roman gods. And that had worked okay for the Christians for a while because the Christians were basically standing behind the Jews in the shadow of their protection, going, we're kind of, we're just here doing our Jesus thing. And then the Jews went, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, these guys are weird. They are not us. They are not us. They are weird. They're Christians. And as soon as that happened, there you have a new group of people in the Roman Empire who are not paying allegiance to all the Roman gods, and they're new, so everybody should hate them. And that's exactly what happened. Persecution poured onto the early Christian church, and they they were weary. Say, Say it was written in AD 65, somewhere like that. Jesus had gone to heaven in about AD 33, ascended to heaven, and he'd said he was coming back really soon. And it had been like, you know, 20, 30-something years since he'd said that, and he hadn't come back, and they were growing weary of waiting. And so they had questions, was Jesus enough? Was what he had done sufficient? Is Jesus enough? And so there's a letter written to encourage the hearts of doubting Jewish Christians in the first century. Now tonight, we're going to read it in Oran Park. And you think, well, uh, Oran Park's a million miles away from first century Rome, right? And I suggest to you there's actually a bunch of similarities. So there is persecution for our church at the moment. I don't know if you read the media, I don't know if you're into it, but this, Sydney Anglicans to ban same-sex marriage, yoga on all church property, was the top story in my news feed this week. Sydney Anglicans, let you in a little secret, people in, in Oran Park, that's us, where's it? It's talking about us and saying we're terrible people because we're going to run our own religion in our own buildings. You'll notice there isn't a headline that says Muslim cleric decides not to run Buddhist ceremony in mosque. That story doesn't get any traction. Sydney Anglicans confirm that they aren't going to do any of the things that they've never done before. In their own private prop. Anyway, I just want to suggest to you there's a rising level of persecution for us in the community. On top of that, there is a threat to our religious freedom. Uh, the, uh, Philip Ruddick has been running an um, uh, 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 investigation into religious freedom in Australia. He's going to release his report, but the, the, uh, the progressives in our world have already started to attack it. And so it's a terrible thing to be a Christian at the moment. We're a bunch of ignorant, uh, hateful people. And it's not appropriate, say down at the local Christian school there, that they appoint Christian teachers. That, that would be ridiculous. Why would we want to do that? We should employ people who believe the very opposite of what we believe. Otherwise, we're being terrible. 
This does not make any sense, brothers and sisters, but that is the world that we are now in. So there are persecution. There are threats to us. There is a weariness. Jesus went to heaven in AD 33 AD. Has he come back yet? Been a while, hasn't it? You might have thought third term took a long time. There's a bit of weariness, isn't there? And it raises questions for us. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life to the full. And we think to ourselves, really? Is this life to the full? I have a full life, but I'm not sure it's everything that God said it would be. Do I need to add things into on top of Jesus? So I think this letter has something to say to us today. We're going to have a look today at two things. We'll look at faith and faithfulness. And I want to suggest that faith, rather than the way our secular world believes it, our secular world would say, if you have faith, you are blindly closing your eyes and jumping into the darkness. That is not what we are doing, brothers and sisters. Faith in the Christian sense is trust in the trustworthy. Trust in the trustworthy. You look at somebody in the person of Jesus and you decide it is reasonable historically. It is reasonable logically. It is reasonable because it appeals to my soul for me to put my trust in Jesus. Trust in the trustworthy. That is our faith. And what is faithfulness? Being trustworthy with the trust. Let me give you an example that I've run across the day. Imagine somebody said for you to look after their dog. Or actually, I've got the coxes here. You're, they're chickens. Would that be right? Imagine someone, said, imagine someone said to you to look after their chickens, okay? And you decide, well, we're going to leave the gate open. I, I'm not going to feed them. And you have uh, starving uh, wild chickens at the end of the process. Have you been faithful with looking after the chickens? The answer is no. No, you haven't, okay? You haven't proved trustworthy with the trust, do you see? Faithfulness is going, someone's entrusted something to you and you prove trustworthy with it. Church, what our God wants from us is that we would prove to be faithful with what has been handed down to us. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. For the, uh, the Jews, the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome, they had started with Moses and they'd seen that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. But now, as things are getting tough, as the heat is going up, they're wondering, should we go back? Is Moses actually really good? Should we add back in all the sacrifices and things of the Jewish religion? Should we go back? And in order to answer that, uh, we need to have uh, an engagement with this little symbol here. Now, um, adults, you may know this symbol, but I'm going to ask the kids who are here tonight, people who are, say, under the age of 18. Does anyone know what this is what it means. Anyone know what this means? Sky. Some sort of mathematical term. Yes. Um, yes, go Melinda. Therefore, great work. So this means, did you know that adults? Of course you did. Just, just nod your heads and, and appear wise. Okay, so this, these three dots mean therefore, okay? And whenever we're reading the Bible, I want to give you a tip. When you come to a therefore, we should ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Have you not heard this before? Okay, great. So when we get to a therefore, we should ask, what is the therefore, therefore? In other words, it's actually a little opportunity for us to go, here's a bit of scripture. I need to look back before this therefore to work out what it's therefore. Yeah, okay, you're with me. So we're going to do that with the passage here. Open your Bibles up if you can. And we're looking at 3.1. In, um, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, and we should ask, if there's a therefore, we should ask, what is the therefore? Great. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses two to, uh, sorry, chapter 2 and verses 14 to 18. But before we do that, I need to ask if anyone likes nachos. I see those hands. Does anyone order nachos for themselves? 
Yes, and what happens when you do that, Lauren? He wants to steal it. Okay, it is the most stolen meal. When you order steak and uh, sides, right, no one is stealing your peas and carrots. But if you order nachos, somebody is always having a sneaky borrow of some of your nachos. Is this not true? So all of a sudden, you are sharing your meal. Well, Jesus shared something much more than nachos with us. He shared his humanity. Have a look with me at verses 14 to, uh, 14 to 15 here. Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus shared our humanity. He was made like us. And because he was able to rise from the dead, he defeated the devil who oversaw his crucifixion. And in doing so, he defeated death, which means he can free every one of us who's afraid of death. That was pretty good. But more than that, by sharing our humanity, if we look at verses 17 to 18, he has more to offer. For this very reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered he, uh, when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what's the second part of Jesus' humanity? It means he can be a priest of us because he's like us. It means that he can make atonement for us, which just sounds too much. I said this morning, it's like he wiped the whiteboard clean. All of our accusations wiped clean. And there's no reboot on a whiteboard. It's gone, it's gone, yeah? So he wiped our sins clean. And because he was made like us when he was tempted, he's able to go, I get you when you're tempted. Jesus is awesome because he's defeated death and because he can help us with sin. Therefore, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now, church, this would be good, wouldn't it? This would be relatively straightforward to do. I'm going to say to you, fix your thoughts on Jesus. You know, no problems. No worries at all. Jesus is awesome. He's conquered death. He'll help you with sin. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. And then you go, yeah, kind of into that. And, and then I'm thinking about my house. I'm thinking about my exams coming up, my planting schedule for my garden. Maybe I'm thinking about world news. I'm thinking about what's happening in the cricket. I've got an eBay thing that's kind of coming through. I, I'm worried about my retirement savings, my family. Maybe I'm thinking about my next cruise, or I'm obsessed about Trump's Twitter feed. No, good. Okay, that's great. That, that'll be better for your godliness anyway. But here's the thing. When I say fix our eyes on Jesus, so many other things crowd in, and our minds are often fixated on other things, aren't they? They just get fixed on things, stuck on stuff. And my question to you guys, as we think about how much of our life we waste, and guys, <laughs> I've got to tell you, I've got an iPhone. It now has stats on where I waste my time. Is anyone, is anyone looking at this in shock? Anyway, maybe you're not, but it blows me away, the time I spend looking at things. And I want to ask you this question as I ask it for myself. Will any of these help us with death and sin? They won't. Well, they might kill you and they might lead you into sin, but they won't help you beat death and resist sin. They're worthless. And yet we fix our minds on them. Instead, we're encouraged to fix our minds on Jesus. Now, the Jewish Christians were told to fix their minds on Jesus, but they're thinking about Moses as well. So that was their kind of thing. Their default was, Jesus, but Moses, but 
Moses. And so the writer of the Hebrews here wants to point to them and say, hey guys, both of them are faithful, but one is better. One is better. And in order to make this point, he's going to talk about houses. And uh, have a look at my houses while I read you these verses here. Have a look with me at verse 2 and following of chapter 3. He was faithful, that's Jesus, was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house was greater on, has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built, built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So here's what it's saying. It's saying there's someone who's worthy of greatest honor, and that's God. He's the creator, and he is the builder of our house. God's the creator. And then it says, Moses was a servant. He's a worthy servant. We should honor him. Moses served in the house of God. In other words, he was a peer with other people who were servants of God. He's a servant in the house. And then it says, Jesus is a son over the house. What does that mean? Not that Jesus stands on the roof. But the son is the boss of the house. He will inherit the house. He is over the affairs of the house. And so Jesus is worthy of greater honor than Moses who served in the house, you see? And then it says, we are his house, and we're going to explore how in a little time. But the point of all these houses is to say, yeah, Moses is great. And Jesus, well, Jesus is greater. So church, you must fix your eyes on Jesus, do you see? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And there are two things that we're called to do if we're to be the house of God. And the first of these is to hold firmly to your confidence. That's what we see in verse 6. Now, has anyone been for a flight recently in a plane? Has anyone ever been for a flight in a plane? Okay. You have to have confidence in the person in the front seat, don't you? Now, I know they have that little door now that you can't see. That When I was a kid, we used to go into the cockpit all the time. It was fantastic. But you can't do that anymore. But there is somebody, there's a human at the front, really. And we need to have confidence in them because they are pointing this big chunk of metal, which is, if, un- if arranged any other way, will fall from the sky. And it's kind of important to go, I think they're going to do a good job. We must have confidence. So with us, we're supposed to have confidence that the one in charge of our lives will be trustworthy with it. Jesus is in charge. Is he pointing our lives in a helpful way? Have confidence. And we get some examples of that, which is what was on my piece of paper. But I'll read to you one of those uh, from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. This will give you an idea of this confidence. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The confidence that we're supposed to have is the kind of confidence to walk up to God and not be afraid. Hold on to your confidence. Second thing we're told to do is hold on firmly to our hope. Now, I'm never going to go skydiving, at least not intentionally, uh, because I think it's crazy. Okay, But if you have decided to jump out of a plane and you don't have a parachute, which is the way this works, you really do want to hold on to or stay connected to the person behind you who has the parachute, don't you? Again, just provide the answer for you. The answer to that is yes. 
Because the ground is coming up, whether you like it, don't like it. If you get out of the plane and you decide, oh, I don't like skydiving anymore. I'm just going to step away from this nasty person who I don't like anymore. That's fine. But gravity and the ground will come and meet you at some point. You want to stay connected to the person who has the parachute because your hope is it's going to open and you will take a graceful landing on the ground as opposed to making a divot. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are supposed to hold on to our hope that Jesus will catch us on Judgment Day. Yeah, We are all falling towards Judgment Day. We're going to face the living God who knows everything about us. And you've jumped out of the plane. You are doing that. The end of your life is approaching at some point. I want to stay connected to the only guy who's got a chute to pop so that I might land on that day and say, I'm not worthy. But this guy here, he's got it covered. And hear my Father in heaven say, well done, good and faithful servant. Hold on to your hope. That's the beautiful hope that we have in Jesus. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 11, it says this. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And in 10.23, it says this. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is going to be good on the final day. He has got you. Don't stop hoping in him. Hold firmly to your confidence. Hold firmly to your hope. And we will be the house of God. Well, the next thing that we see, have a look with me in the Bible, if you've got it there, in verse 7 is uh, an extensive quotation from Psalm 95. And I just want to ask you, why does he quote Psalm 95 now? That seems odd. Why quote Psalm 95 now? And the answer is, he's quoting Psalm 95 now because it's all about Numbers 14. And you go, oh, what? Why, why is that relevant? And I think that's a good question, so let me tell you what happens in Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, we've got the people of God who've been taken as, pri- as um, slaves in Egypt. They've been set free. They've gone wandering in the desert, got the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. They've come to the edge of the promised land. And then they've sent some spies into the promised land. Does anyone know how many spies they sent in? All of those answers are good. The number is 12. Ten of them came back and said, the land is good, but don't go in because there are scary people in there who might kill us. The other two said, it's a beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, which for me sounds like a domestic disaster on my kitchen table, but is supposed to be a picture of abundance and brilliance, okay? A land flowing with milk and honey. And so they come back and they say, hey, guys, the land's amazing. We should go in. God will be with us. And the 10 voices outweighed the two. And the people of God said, we will not go in. We have lost our confidence that God is for us. We have lost our hope that this is the promised land for us. We are afraid of our kids. If we take our kids into this land and everything goes pear-shaped, they'll be made slaves. We're afraid. In fact, what we want to do now is we want to go home. The most terrible thing that the people of God do, they get to the promised land, they're right on the edge of it, and they say, we want to go home. Home is where they were what? Slaves. They've so lost their confidence and hope in God that they would prefer slavery than the promises of God before them. And so God says, this is a terrible disaster. I am going to stop everyone who is over the age of 20 from ever getting into this promised land. You know that they wandered in the desert for 40 years? Do you know why that was? It wasn't because they lacked GPS. 
It was so that everyone over the age of 20 could die because of their lack of faith. And God would take the new generation in and say, you guys will trust me. But reflecting on that in Psalm 95, it says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Don't be people who see the beautiful promises of God and harden your hearts and refuse to trust God. That's why it speaks of Psalm 95 here. So what should we do to avoid this? Well, there are practical pieces of advice in this passage. Two are corporate and two are individual. When I say corporate, it's not like business, but collective. Uh, Imagine that you went down to the beach and you see this sign on the left-hand side there. Shark sighted today, enter water at own risk. And someone is standing there about to wander in. What do you do? Well, typically, you could uh, keep reading your Kindle on your phone or whatever and just ignore them because they don't exist. Or maybe you could just start rolling your camera so that you'll get some awesome footage to put up on YouTube. Would that be a right response? Collectively, we shouldn't let that happen, should we? We should go down and stop them because mortal danger is in the water, yes? So collectively, we wouldn't let that happen. Well, brothers and sisters, here's what it says in verse 12. It says that collectively, we should see to it, brothers and sisters, verse 12, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. We need to look out for one another. The shark of sin is circling around us. Do we look out for one another or not? It should be that there are no lone ranger Christians. It's deadly dangerous. So we should look out for one another. The other thing we're called to do in verse 13 is to encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Well, it's called today quite a bit, isn't it? It's been being called today for the last, you know, almost 2,000 years since this was written. So it's good advice. You need to encourage one another as long as it's called today. The wonderful thing about that is, I need to see you, I need to know you, and I need to remember to speak to you. Again, you can't do this Christian walk on your own. There's no solo Christians. We're called to beware of unbelieving hearts collectively, and we're called to encourage each other daily. Now, there's a reason for doing that, because we might be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Well, here's an an organ in the body. Does anyone know what that is? What organ is that? Did you know it's an organ in the body or does it look like just a prop from aliens? Anyone, sorry? The liver, it is. It's the liver. And I want to show you what a hardened liver looks like. That's pretty horrible, isn't it? How does it get that way? If you get sclerosis or hardness of the liver, you you get it by self-medication. So maybe you take too much medication and you take it to paint, too many painkillers and that sort of things. It'll harden up your liver. It's interesting, we medicate as a society. We've decided that pain is impossible and that we just need to get rid of it entirely. Some of us will medicate with painkillers. Some of us will medicate with alcohol. Some of us will medicate with pornography. Whatever it is, we'll we'll try to escape from the pain of our life with self-medication and it hardens our hearts against the Word of God. Another way that we can get an unhealthy liver is unhealthy additions to our diet. And there are lots of unhealthy additions to our spiritual diet. Things that build a dependence that isn't in line with trusting God. Um, From gambling to gossip to all sorts of things. We have unhealthy additions to our diet. 
And so what does that mean in practice? Well, when we have a hardness of heart, we'll come to the Word of God and we'll go, I won't do that. God's Word says this, and we say, I won't do that. When we have hardness of heart, we'll say, God can't mean that. I read that in the Bible, but God can't mean that. We've progressed from that, haven't we? We're a much more advanced society. We don't need to do that. Or or maybe we just say, it's too old-fashioned. This is a dusty Bible. Who needs this stuff in our lives anymore? We have a hardness of heart towards the Word of God. What are we supposed to do instead of having a hard heart? Two things. We are supposed to hold firm, it says in verse 14. Have a look with me. We've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction, firm to the very end. Now, some of you um, will have become Christians at some point. Is that right? Some of you aren't Christians yet, but it would be great to make that decision. Even tonight, it's a great decision. Jesus defeated death and can wipe out your sin. Get on board with Jesus. But here's the thing. If you've made that decision, was it a long time ago? In fact, this will be fun tonight. Can you, can you put up your hand if you made a decision to follow Jesus uh, in the last two years? Just put up your hand. If you... Oh, nice. I see that hand there. Beautiful. as a little... <laughs> uh, if you've done it in the last five years... If you've done it in the last 10 years, if you've done it in the last 20 years, if you've done it in the last 30 years, if you've done it more than 40 years ago, thank you kids, put your hands down, but some of you have. Look at these beautiful people back here, right? That's amazing. And what I would say to each one of you is hold your original conviction to the end. Hold tight. Jesus was worth it at some point in your life. You said, I'm in Jesus. Hold on. Hold tight. And secondly, stay soft. Stay soft. As it has been said, verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Stay soft to the word of God. Metal, Doug will tell you more about this after on, at supper, but metal is hard. When you heat it up, it becomes soft and it stays soft as long as it's close to the white hot fire of the furnace. You and I will have soft hearts when we're close to the white hot furnace of our relationship with God. Step away from God and everyone in this room who follows Jesus will know our hearts harden when we're away from God, don't they? Stay close to God and stay close to his word. So how will we stay fixed on God, stay encouraging one another each day? Well, I want to suggest two things for us to do practically. We time and me time. It's supposed to be memorable, you see. What is we time? When we time, I want to encourage you to go to church. Thank you, you're here. I want to encourage you to go to life group. You may not have one yet. And I want to encourage you to find space to do life with other Christians. Why? Because if it's regular, you'll develop friendship. If it's friendship, it'll be deeper. If it's deeper, you'll care to encourage. You'll know if sin is hardening someone's heart. While you bounce off the surface of church, who will know you well enough to ask these things of you? Step into relationship with God. You know, I I said this morning, uh, I know what I'm doing in, uh, in June 2020 on Sunday morning. And Sunday night. It's church. I don't need to check my calendar. Hey, hey, on Sunday morning in June 2020, could you? My answer is, no, I'm busy. I don't even need to open my diary. Why? Because I have made a prior commitment to put church 
first? Will we do we time? The second thing we want to do is we want to have me time where we sit under the scripture, the word of God, daily engage with this ancient book that's living and active, that we pray regularly and that we do life with God, not just come to church and say, hey God, haven't checked in for a while, good to see you, have you missed me on Sunday? No, 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 we've been walking with God every day. What does that look like? Well, we read regularly. We have a genuine friendship with our maker. We know him and he knows us. And it's deeper than it was last year. Yeah, yeah, but here's where you're going to have some questions. Yeah, 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 but it's hard to get to life group because of the traffic. My kids have a birthday on Sunday morning. We were away this weekend. I'm not really good at reading. And last time I prayed, God didn't answer my prayer anyway, so... There are lots of excuses, aren't there? I, I've been sharing across the day, but um, my kids and I, Caro and, and I, we, we've said as a family that we want to make sure that as a family, we put God first. And so we've said collectively, Sunday morning is when we go to church. We often come to church on Sunday night together as well, which is great. They're not here tonight, but that's all right. But we've said Sunday morning is when we go to church. So I've said to the kids, don't be disappointed when an invitation comes and it says there's a birthday on Sunday morning. You don't need to sweat about it. You don't need to come and ask us because the decision is no, not because we're punishing you, but because as a family, we've decided to put God first on Sunday mornings. There aren't actually lots of opportunities to show this. So we've just said as a family, we're going to do that. But I said, kids, it's not a punishment. So as soon as the service is finished, we'll get you to the party. If that is the time that means you miss out, we'll arrange a play date with you for your kids, uh, for your kids to catch up. We're not punishing you. We're prioritizing Jesus. And what about the work one when things get busy? You know, I just can't get any time to read. Well, first of all, I've got a great app on my phone called Dwell, which will read me the Bible. It's fantastic. I'll tell you some more about that in question and answer time. But I used to work in a real job. You won't believe this. You know, I just, I'm a minister. I just work one day a week, as you, can, as you know. But that's a joke. But I used to work in a, in a real workplace uh, where I worked for a multinational. And I was a, a national sales manager. And every day I'd have a to-do list this long. And I'd write it down each day. I'd carry over the things undone from the day before into the new day. And I'd write at the top of that list every single day, read and pray. In my office, at work. And it wasn't like I didn't have things to do. But what I would say to myself, my personal commitment to myself and to God was, I won't tick another box on this list until I've done that one. I'm going to read and pray before I engage with the things of this day. Brothers and sisters, we need to be serious. The world is watching to see whether this weird, outmoded, hateful bunch of losers who are Christians are legit. Are you serious? Or are you just a bunch of bigots? I want to encourage you, church, we need to be faithful to serve in God's house. We need to be serious about having faith to worship our our living God because he's real, because you personally love him. It's not a good idea. It's actually your personal conviction. Are you legit? Are you serious? If you are, we'll be a faithful church together. You know, we want to help uh, across this series tell you some more about 2019, what our plans are. We want to give you more space. As a church, we offer lots of things that go on. 
we're looking to pare back our calendar to give you back more space. We want to help you to go deeper with Jesus in this next year. And we want to provide that space so that you can go deeper with others in friendship. That's my goal for 2019. These three things. More space in our calendar so that we can go deeper with Jesus and deeper with others. Let me pray and then you might have some questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word encourages us not to harden our hearts when we hear your word. Father, the world around us is getting more and more upset. It's getting more and more vitriolic, more and more angry. Father, the answer is for us to know one another and to know you. Father, help us to treasure you. Help us to be faithful as apprentices to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. All right, I've had a bit of a rant. Hopefully that's been encouraging. This is Q&A time. Um, there's some things that I said that were probably a little bit controversial. Um, uh, have you got questions, things that you'd like us to discuss as we think about how to be faithful as a church together? Hello, have you just walked in? It's nice to see you. I suspect you won't have a question for me on the sermon, so can I take those first? That's okay. Can I, can I take some other questions from the sermon first and then we can chat some more? Is that okay? Good work. Okay. Some questions. Are you all ready to do this, church? Are you ready to be faithful? Are there any hesitations, things that make this hard that you want to ask me about? Lauren. Um, I've been reflecting the last couple of weeks about um, prayer and quiet times and stuff like that. And it's something that within my hectic life, it's really hard to find a set time. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's more of a, a comment, I guess, yeah. or you can talk back to me in terms of uh, checklist. I, I don't want it to be a checklist. I don't want it to be an obligation. I want it to be a reflection of my relationship with God. And um, Yeah, can you maybe speak into that a little bit of just how it's, it's not, I've ticked it, I'm done, yeah. but it's, I'm speaking to my Heavenly Father who loves me more than anyone else. Yeah. How can it not just be job done? get to the rest sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's great. Say so two things. Uh, first thing is, when it turns into religion, we poison it, right? So when it's just, I'm just fulfilling my obligation, we poison it. However, so that's our danger. I'd say to a whole bunch of you, we're far more in danger of ignoring God than turning regularity into religion. So if our mortal fear is, oh my goodness, if I did it every day, it would become religious, I'd say give it a go for a while and you might find that you like praying to God and reading the Bible. And if your danger is to say, oh, I'm just doing it because I have to tick my box, then I'd say to you, fine, stop and talk to God about the sin in your heart, which is turning meeting up with your heavenly father into religion. Just pray about that. Don't read that day. My prayer today, God, is, God, I feel like I'm here and I'm just doing it religiously. And the God who is there would love to talk to you about that. Are you with me? So I think that's the answer. The answer isn't, oh my goodness, I can't do it regularly because that'll become religion. I just say, do you do it regularly? I find I love Jesus more when I do it regularly, not it turns into religion. And if you're having that, oh my goodness, my heart is getting hard towards this, talk to him about it. If you need to have a week off, go for gold. Because He's not wanting to tick a box for you to say if you're good enough. He just wants to meet with you. So I'm never going, oh my goodness, I have to see my family at breakfast again, although some of you might be. I love seeing my family, 
we should love meeting up with our Heavenly Father. Is that okay, Lauren? Yeah, good. Other questions? Yeah. God did something we didn't expect. I think what he did that we didn't expect was instead of punishing us, he offered us a way for us to be forgiven. Okay? Because I think we, we figure out, if I do the wrong thing, I get in trouble. And what's happened in the Bible, something radical has happened. The people who've done the wrong thing get to be forgiven if they trust in Jesus. Is that okay? Great question. Okay, thanks everyone. Uh, keep being faithful, church. Jesus is pretty good. I like him. <laughs>